hi gabfest listeners this is a special edition of the political gabfest about relationships during the pandemic esther perel the brilliant therapist will join us to talk about families our partners the people we work with the people we see and the people we wish we got to see more often we're guessing that like for us nearly all of your relationships have been transformed by this pandemic so we decided to have a whole conversation about that and we found it so interesting that we decided to publish it in full as its own episode it felt like a little bit of a tonic for the three of us to be part of it and we hope it can help lighten the weight on your shoulders too so here's the show. Esther Perel is a psychotherapist, a writer, a podcaster. She wrote, of course, Mating Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, which was a huge bestseller. She has a new book and also a New York Times bestseller, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. And of course, she hosts the very popular podcast, Where Should We Begin? And how, also another podcast, How's Work? Also popular. And during the shutdown, she is doing a podcast miniseries out of Where Should We Begin? called Couples Under Lockdown. And also, because she is the busiest person in the world, she's also doing live video conversations on YouTube and Facebook on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. Whew, goodness, that's a lot. So Esther, the title of your, your most famous book is Made in Captivity, and I know that's not the kind of captivity that you were talking about when you wrote that. But based on what you're seeing so far out of the shutdown and out of the quarantine, what are the distinct characteristics of relationships in this lockdown? So, you know, this could be Mating in Captivity, the sequel, you know, the quarantine edition. But um, what we see is this. Uh, in, in situations of acute stress, and the stress is literally becoming gradually more acute by the week, we're going to see how either people will love each other more or people will hate each other more. People will either appreciate each other more or they will fight more. And they often will do both. It's not just always either or. People will also experience that they have very different coping mechanisms, coping styles and coping legacies from their family, from their culture, from their background about how to deal with uncertainty, with the unknown, with acute stress, with anticipatory grief. And these different coping styles are in some cases going to become highly complementary versus other situations where they become more polarized and each one sees the other a little bit as a threat, you know, as if you can be sure when you're dealing with uncertainty, which in itself is an oxymoron. So uh, one thing I've been hearing from friends and noticing in my own family is that every day can feel like a sort of mini roller coaster where someone in the family has a low moment and everyone is drawn into it. Sometimes at all moments of the day, sometimes we're able to sort of put it off until the evening. Give me an but example I, of a low moment. So for example, one of my kids is in college and he has had moments of grief about not being in college and then just dealing with a lot of uncertainty about his summer programs and plans being canceled, looking ahead to next fall, wondering what will be happening. It's completely legitimate, his concerns. And then we obviously are talking them through. But I, I wonder if you have any ideas about how to kind of manage that pattern, even just like through the day? Is it better to talk to people, your family members, as they're upset? Is it better to have a more scheduled kind of day where maybe at various mealtimes everyone is together, but otherwise leaves them each other alone? 
to all these questions, my answer will be a little of everything. And it depends on which family. I think that the, the seeking of a specific protocol that is a one-size-fits-all is in and of itself what will be detrimental. Because what is most important in a situation like the one we're in is to be highly flexible and adaptive. And so it's often actually dictated by the moment. So you may be a family that, you know, every morning does a kind of a quick stress test with each other. How's everybody doing today? You know, what's on your mind? How did you sleep? Anybody woke up at three o'clock in the morning? Anybody had bad dreams? And you do a kind of a checklist together. You may be a family that waits for the dinner and sits together, which is something that has actually become a return of an of a disappeared tradition and just say, you know, this thing about the, you're going to school like that and, and, and thinking that your teachers are still teaching the course they had prepared that has absolutely nothing to do with the world that you're living in. I can completely see why you're not interested or why this is challenging or what have you heard from your friends, etc. And then you have in the moment just to say you're having a tough time. You're having a tough day. Do you think you need to start your day over? Do you need to go and take a break? Do you need to take a walk if they can leave the house? You need to call somebody. I can't help you right now, but I know you're having a tough time. So you acknowledge it, you name it, you punctuate, and you bracket it. So there's all of this. There is the momentary intervention. There is the conversation, the existential conversation of, over time. There is the tragic optimism that tries to make sense of it. There is the practical solution of what can you do. And we are intervening in, with, you know, at all levels throughout one day. There is the go eat something. You must be, you know, do you, you haven't eaten. You have, you, you, there's the basic just like, have you eaten today? You know, so we, we scan the levels of the Maslow ladder of needs and we intervene at those, you know, at every level. Esther, how should people think about calibrating um, their own impulses. One of my favorite tweets out of this, in, in, and with respect to relationships, one of my favorite tweets from this whole experience was from Eric Spiegelman. And it, the tweet goes like this. He said, my wife and I play this fun game during quarantine. It's called, why are you doing it that way? There are no winners. Um, in relationships, there is, um, you know, everybody's sharing chores. There's load sharing. There's um, you know, the thing on the ground that needs to be dealt with and nobody's, um, how should we think about how to kind of manage the just day to day, recognizing that everything you do has this implicit or explicit judgment that you're making on all the other members of the household because they're not doing it or not doing their share. I think that one of the first thing you do is you separate the relationship from the project. There's a task at hand. We are going to be here in this bunker for a while. And this is not a, we go home for two weeks and we work from home. And we, the only thing that changes is the physical location, but the world we're in is the same. So that's the first thing is you let the reality drop, you know, um, and that reality means that we are basically living with a deep sense of loss at this moment. And it brings sadness and fear and anger and despair and helplessness and a lot of feelings that are not being named and that become translated into quibbers over, you know, how you should clean the bathroom and have you wiped it and Lysol to the staircase. It's easier to talk about Lysol than to talk about pathogens, than to talk about fears, than to talk about, I went to the store this morning and this person came too close to me and I'm crazy for thinking this way, but you know, we, have, we are having crazy anti-human thoughts 
about ourselves and about others, but we prefer to talk about the spraying. It's normal because it gives a sense of normalcy and we want to err on what is called the normalcy bias. We can still think of life as we know it, but at the same time, we are also dealing with, no, this is not life as we know it, but it can't be completely not life as we know it because that is called the abnormalcy bias, you know, and you straddle in between those two polarities. And then you will see that some people who usually, you know, don't do much when it comes to crisis time, this is their high time. You know, they grew up in chaos. They have known loss. They have known loss because their mother died at 13, just like that overnight. They have known loss because they'd already lived in three, four countries because they had to move every time in various strange situations. This is normal life for them. This living with a current of dread, you know, that runs through your day. This is actually what they've been to when they have been with their depression. Let these people actually shine for a moment. They have the right skills. They actually do much more than the person who says, I want my latte, you know, in the middle of Brooklyn. Never know, you know, because nothing's going to happen to me kind of thing. So this conversation, if you have humor, I think it's the best, the best, the best thing you can have. It's an, a total aphrodisiac at the moment. You know, the best humor is written in situations like this. And if you have a belly laugh for a moment, you think that you still are a normal person with perspective. Any place where you can go and find good humor and there's some great stuff out there is really very helpful. As a whole, when somebody does something, you can try to tell them they didn't do it well and get into that atmosphere. Or you can just basically say, it's one less thing I have to do. If I want to do it better, I'll do it another time. But the main thing is this. You don't just thank the person for doing this. You thank the person for being kind, for being thoughtful. You thank them for who they are and not just for what they do. It's a real important distinction. And then you create a kind of a positive sentiment in the house where people are not just like snapping at each other because we are going to become more irritable. We are going to become impatient. We are going to be impulsive. This is, this is going to happen. And the person that you're going to snap at is the one that's right next to you. And then on occasion, just simply say, I'm really sorry, I'm at stress level nine. So it's a code word that just says, you know, better don't, don't talk to me because what's going to come out, it's not going to be good. Let's just wait cool off, and do the best you can of creating boundaries within the house. Time boundaries, space boundaries, interaction boundaries, you know, the best you can, because what is so interesting is that we are also, you know, typically you exercise in one place, you go see friends in another, you go see your parents at a third, you go to work in another, your roles are localized. At this point, all your roles are happening on the same spot on the same chair, without any movement entering your body. That is not a normal way of living. Esther, one of the premises of the questions we've asked so far is that these are for people who are living with other people. And the people I worry about most, I think, during this are people who are alone and who don't have, who don't, aren't even have the, having the chance to have this kind of intimate friction and intimate connection right. with others. And I assume that some of the people who are listening to the show right now are people who are alone and may have been alone for weeks without, without a, an intimate in the room moment with others. What, what counsel do you have for them for how to get through that? Amazingly important question, but I will make a distinction. People who are alone are not necessarily lonely. 
and people who live with others can live in deep states of aloneness and in deep states of ambiguous loss with somebody who may be physically present but emotionally completely absent. So I think the thing we're highlighting is there is nothing more important at this moment for mental health than warm social connections. And regardless of where you get them. And those social connections may be with people that you have known or people that you haven't spoken to sometimes in years. It's this kind of, you know, it's a time where you reorganize your priorities. Who matters? Who doesn't? Who did I let go that I should never have let go in the first place? And people are reaching out across continents. When you are alone, when you feel lonely, when you feel like you, you wish you were going through this with somebody, of course you wish you go through this with somebody. But I want you to think about who are the somebodies that are in your social network, in your system, available right now that you're not maybe thinking about. They may, they, they, those are people that not just you need them, but they may need you too. It's, it, it's not a way that we think typically, you know, that if you're going to do for others, you actually will feel less lonely. So if you bring any expressions of compassion and care and purpose into your aloneness, you are much better off not feeling lonely because you matter, because you're doing something for someone that is important to them. We'd be bringing down the garbage for them. If you live in an apartment building, buying something for them, going to the pharmacy, picking up the box at the UPS, whatever that you, gestures, it's not grand things. Most important thing is this. Everybody has the same need as you in this moment. You think you are more lonely than others and you think that you are more affected by this. You're not. And do it organically. It's very hard to motivate yourself to exercise all the time alone. Don't just go in an anonymous class. Just call two people you kind of know that they exercise. They may not be your closest friend. Doesn't matter. And just say, can we just meet up at nine o'clock, you know, all of us? It'll help you. Most of us are finding it so difficult to remain productive, to start something and to finish it. So weave in the social fabric into the various activities. If you're going to connect with people, don't just sit and, and look at the screen, just say, I'm going for a walk. Do you want to go for a walk with me? As weird as this sounds, when your body moves, energy enters, and it really is one of the most important protections against trauma because trauma is a contraction in the body. And then just choose with somebody as you're walking. You know, It's those kind of integrating others in your life that will ultimately make us feel less lonely. But there are hotlines. You will call the hotline if there is an increase in domestic violence in your house and you can call without it being at risk for your life. You will call if you feel suicidal. Just know that it's not a failure of you that you are in that situation at this moment. It is the circumstances of the life that we lead and it is heightening the fault lines in our lives and in our relationships. Esther, do you, are you already seeing or do you think you'll start to see milestones of people coping in different ways as this progresses? Um, you know, imagine a world in which social distancing, physical distancing really lasts um, not just through April, but through May in partial ways for some people. It may last far longer or we may have to resume it in the fall, depending on what happens with the virus. And I wonder if you think there will learn about um, different level, like a sort of week one or month one set of patterns that then change as the situation continues. 
Yes, but we know that because there is actually an existing literature for the, you know on disaster. There is a literature on families in war and in exile. The, these things have been studied. We know that when it comes to relationships, these kind of situations function as an accelerator. Accelerator because you are acutely aware of the presence of mortality, of uncertainty, of the unknown, of, of the loss of the world that you knew. And when life is short, you know, you say, well, what are we waiting for? And you either say, let's get married, let's have babies, or life is short, I've waited long enough, let's get divorced. And so there is going to be a boom on both extremes. We know that when people start out, they are hunkering around what is called the principle of continuity, the continuity of roles. I'm going home and I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing. I'm just going to do it from home. <laughs> or I'm going home and I'm going to organize my whole house. I'm going, to be, I'm going to have a spurt of productivity. Other people want to maintain relationship continuity. I'm going to continue to see my friends. I'm going to, you know. And then other people deal with what is called historical continuity, which is the, the stories that have been carried through the families through the community about the adversity and vulnerability and resilience. And the holidays are arriving right now in the Christian and in the Jewish world, and all of this will be mounting, you know. So the first phase is concrete. People think that if they are concrete and problem-solving, they can, they can, they'll, they'll, they'll be prepared. I mean, the amount of talk we had about toilet paper was just outstanding. You know, then comes the slowly, the, the, it, it, this is taking much longer. This is, you know, and the kids are not focused and the screens are terrible and the teachers are, you know, and, and the, the suicidality is rising and et cetera, et cetera. And then there is a slow kind of lessening of expectations and it's about really the long haul and life is going to become more simple. And people are going to be cooking like they haven't cooked in a long time and cleaning like they haven't cleaned in a long time and driving miles and miles to find food because they live in deserts and everybody says you need to eat healthy, but there is no healthy food to be found. It's going to become more somber and it's going to become more black humor and it's going to become more essential and it's going to become either you know more connected or more I can't wait another minute for this to be over and I'm out of here. It's all of the above. And Esther, do you think that last um, aspect that you just put your finger on, that kind of we have, uh, we can't wait to get out of here, do you think that's been exacerbated by the fact that we essentially live in an impulse society where opinions and cars and food and wine and movies and everything is available at the touch of a button and that this problem is absolutely resistant to immediate fixes and the touch of a button. I don't think it's a matter of consumerism. This has happened throughout, this has always happened, actually. This is not a new phenomenon, but um, of, of why people suddenly say, after 9-11, it was the same. You know, after every war in the Middle East, it's like that. I mean, it, it's a sense of um, dealing with mortality and... Uh, what is the difference between not being dead and being alive? What's the difference between surviving and thriving? And how do you experience aliveness as an antidote to that death? Not just death in the physical sense, 
the deadness of so much loss. There's so much loss, it's just impossible for people to, to capture it. Every moment you think of something and you can't do it anymore. It's even a slight, you know, can you hold this? No, I can't hold this for you. <laughs> you can't do it anymore. It's like the, the, the niceties, the gestures of, of, of care, of the things that make us feel human are suddenly life-threatening. And this is a real mindfuck, if I may use that word. You may use that word. You've come to what's essential, which is these relationships and connections, and we're all trying to navigate them. So I, I mean, our show has become so we don't even talk. I mean, we talk a little bit about politics, but it's become about how to live through this and the best conversations we're having, I think. I mean, John and Emily, you can disagree are are about how to live through it. What I wonder, Esther, is how much near miss learning there will be after this is all over, whether people will still hang on to all of those elemental questions that you were talking about. They don't. You stay for a while and then you feel like you can, the danger is removed, you know, and you no longer have to be living with your rep, rep, reptilian brain on, on alert. And you can begin to do, take risks again and do foolish things. And, you know, right now it's like we're in, some people are still taking risks, but the vast majority of us are in massive risk management. You know, we are acutely aware of danger. And when you're acutely aware of danger, you're not having fun. Um, it is not extreme sports where the danger is the fun. So um, it's about risk. And, um, and the risk is the virus, but the risk is the violence in the homes. The risk is the violence that people have on, them, on, on themselves and all of that. Once the, the threat is removed within a six-month period, what is not sure is if people will go to restaurants, for example. Will people want to put themselves in the presence of strangers at such close proximity again? I don't know. Um, I had a friend whose husband had came this close to dying, and then he recovered. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, I will never complain about anything course, again, like now course. that this happened. And then, you know, three months later, she was complaining about everything, that, that heightened state and that sense of gratitude and that sense of whatever it is, it's just, you can't hold it. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way to hold on to any of it. One of my friends was talking about stillness, like the importance of stillness, which I think we do have more of a sense of right now. And I mean, I suppose the question is, can you wall off some parts of your life or your day and remember the value of this time? And probably no, probably we'll just go back because also we just want to be in some easier state. So I'll give you an example. I will give you an example. I have two children. One of my boys, first day of kindergarten, actually exactly second day of kindergarten was 9-11 downtown next to the towers. And his last semester in college is, is the virus. So he has his whole education bookmarked with historical events. But I can tell you, I do know that my children have a sense of restlessness about the world that they grew up with from then. That is, that is marked inside of them. They understood very early on that, that this is not La La Land, number one. Number two, they developed a political awareness very early on because of 9-11 as well. You know, they learned about the news at an age that normally you shouldn't. So there's other ways that these things mark people. You know, I think an awareness about the environment is going to become part of way more people, you know, the environment and an awareness of the interdependence of parts in a society. Those kind of things will remain, but they're not going to remain as in you're going to not complain anymore. They're going to remain as in they become kind of in the background of what makes you the person you are. That 
kind of thing. That Esther Perel, her podcast is Where Should We Begin? And she has a special series she's doing called Couples Under Lockdown. Esther, thanks for coming. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Same here. Thanks for listening, GabFest fans. If you liked what you heard, please share it with a friend. And we'll be back again on Thursday with a new episode of our regular weekly show. Bye for now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.